So it wasn't a bot, you know, it wasn't a, you, know, you didn't see, you didn't see this in the window and then mm-hmm. go, that's it, I'm going to have that. Mm-hmm. It, well, it's happened over many years and finding things and tripping over things mm-hmm. and nice presents from folk and just a hodgepodge of all sorts of things uh, that have come together over a period of time that end up in a rather pleasing, you know, sort of, um, God, if I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. God. Homie. I said homie. He said the H one. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Homing In podcast. I'm Matt Gibbard, co-founder of The Modern House. Before we get going today, I just wanted to let you know that we've made a new film series, which is also imaginatively called Homing In, uh, and it's being released on our YouTube channel. It's a very happy hybrid between my book, A Modern Way to Live, and this podcast. So it combines design inspiration with some very personal stories of home. Uh, The first film is all about space, and I went to visit the wonderful architect Simon Alford to see how he's adapted his flat in central London with all sorts of sliding doors and clever hidden storage. The next episode is about a flat in Trellick Tower. Uh, Then we've got a single-story house in a field in Kent, a passive house in Devon, uh, and all sorts of other things after that. Uh, Someone described the series as MTV Cribs meets through the keyhole for the modern generation, uh, which I rather like. If that sounds like it's of interest, uh, then you can run a search for The Modern House on YouTube, and it will come up. On to today's guest, and I'm really pleased to welcome the gloriously exuberant chef Jeremy Lee. I first became aware of Jeremy's food when he was head chef of Terence Conran's Blueprint Cafe, which was above the old design museum in Shad Thames. Uh, nowadays, of course, he's in charge of the kitchen at the much-loved Quo Vardis in Soho. No one seems to have a bad word to say about Jeremy, uh, and Jay Rayner describes him as one of those rare phenomena in the London food world, a chap everyone agrees is a good thing. His cookbook is simply called Cooking, which I think sums up his warm-hearted and simple approach to food. I was fascinated to find out more about Jeremy's life via the homes he's lived in, from the modern house his parents built, which was shaped like a wedge of cheese, to the flat in a converted factory where we recorded this episode. It turns out that his approach to interiors is as artful as his presentation of food, as if each element has been dolloped off a spoon and landed in exactly the right place. Here it is, and I hope you enjoy it. So Jeremy, the custom is always to start you right back at the beginning. So I have identified your lovely lilt, but tell us about where you were born and grew up. Oh, well, I was born in St Mary's in Dundee. And then when I was one, I'm the youngest of three boys. Dad bought a plot of land just outside outside Dundee in the foothills of the Sidlaw Hills um, for a farmer on a field on the Bray in Octahouse and built this house, which was, to all intents and purposes, looks like a giant block of cheese with huge big windows and what have you. And they filled this house with all manner of things, modern and old. And they had, they had their foot in many camps because they loved everything. Yeah. And we really did luck out. So what, what kind of kid were you then? I think we were very cute kids. His dad was an amazing photographer, which he inherited from his father. Okay. His grandpa was an illustrator for DC Thompson, which was the big publishing house in Dundee. And indeed, dad followed in his footsteps, deciding that to try and make it as an artist, trying to bring up a family of four by this stage, because my sister had joined us by that time. It was not the wisest course to take. 
So he hunkered down and got himself a career. Anyway, he was, they were amazing and great fun. And what I find interesting harking back to those times was we took it utterly for granted, but mum cooked for us every day, done breakfast, lunch okay. and dinner. Oh. And in fact, when we were tiny, the breakfast table was laid the night before. Oh my God, that's the 60s. The last throwback to the 50s and 40s and that. So oh. when it was laid, what would it, how would it look? Oh God, well, they were quite good. They had a round table, yeah. uh, which I liked. That was quite good for keeping things fairly democratic. <laughs> Although in our household, that was seriously questionable. Um, <laughs> patriarchal springs to mind. Yeah, really. And the table laid was... the had this quite nice kitchen. They had this huge, big, wide counter on which everything got piled. You know, and then it was handed through to the dining room. And the dining room, there was, a, there was always a wonderful tablecloth in an amazing shade of pink or orange or purple or green or yellow, with always amazing colours. And then pink and orange napkins accordingly. Oh, um, man, that's great. And then Arabia plates and white and blue. And they were very modernist on that kind of thing. There was lots of old stuff and antiques around the house. But the table itself was always quite modern, which I always... Which struck. I mean, we just, it was just how we lived. I mean, didn't really think anything of it growing up. Mum was very good at plowing through old markets and junk shops and places and get, acquiring ad hoc things. So there was this, we just got this lovely hodgepodge of things yeah. around. Uh, but it was a fact, and always homemade jams, really good butter, ace bread, and amazing bakers in Dundee. And growing up, we still had a high street. Hmm. We had a greengrocer and a butcher and a baker, um, numerous bakers in actual fact. The sweet tooth in Scotland is quite remarkable and their baking habit extraordinary. So yeah. really quite good. Yeah. So we lucked out a lot and also yeah. and all sorts of delicious things we eaten. Aberdeen Rowies and piling we got a crust and we shoved it full of bacon. <laughs> 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 and being ultra naughty, we then go on a dot of butter and some marmalade too. <laughs> quite naughty when yeah. thinking back on it. And so I went from a very slender bonnie lad into a great huge bunter of a teenager um, hardly surprising as my mum ladled cream down our throats <laughs> but dad remained annoyingly thin this is what really gets my goat now he just had this unbelievable incredible energy and when he was a kid he'd been locked up for a year by a doctor who told his mother my grandmother that he had a heart condition and then a year later told him he didn't and he'd been lying in bed for a year and of course crazy as a teenager devoured the Encyclopedia Britannica, and then, I mean, he uses every book that ever got written, you know, it's even read Dickens and all sorts. So he was incredible, and he was a ferocious, wonderfully quizzical, curious mind dad that we all inherited in some part or another, because I think that's the thing with cooks, and a great many other disciplines, where folk want to do things, they like to do things with their hands and be busy, and they like to engage constantly and find out things. Oh, and Dad handed that on to us for the genius. And Mum, much the same. Fabulous cook, domestic science teacher, who had been born in India before the war, right into that nonsense of a thing called the ranch. Outrageous, fleecing the Indians. With part, because she was one of the Duke families of, of Dundee. And when war broke out, she happened to be stationed. They were, they were with her and her sister. They were very young. They were only about seven or eight, I think, or something. Tiny tots. But they were back in Dundee and they never went back. Okay. So they had this sort of, they were sort of kind of remarkably, wonderfully bonkers, my parents. So you described them as slightly bonkers and you said it was quite patriarchal. What did that do for you as a child? Like, what, what were you like as a child like, in that environment? 
Oh, God, hilarious. I mean, we ran absolute riot because on one hand, Dad couldn't be bored for a second. It just loads mm. it. And the idea of him sitting with four silent children at a table was utter anathema. So we were encouraged to be completely and utterly wild and shouting and screaming and talking. And, and you had to, you, know, you only got heard if you shouted loudest. So conversation flew. And so that was very, well, sweet and funny, bit bonkers. And we didn't fit into the school mould. At all. No, what was uh, we like went to a very grand private school in Dundee called the high school, which my mother had gone to. And we didn't fit into this at all. It was far too academic. Not that we were stupid by any stretch, all thick, all <laughs> such charming epithets we used back then. But we didn't engage really with that and muddle through our exams. So we and dad worked at home, and because mum worked at a school, we lucked out being four kids brought up with our parents. Mm. And we were a rambunctious, good family. Yeah. I think. Happy. Yeah. Amazing childhood. All the time. But nothing prepares you for adulthood. I was quite bookish and quite... I mean, I'm really... I think I was a proper geek. The big thing on a Wednesday was when the radio and TV times were delivered. And Dad would map the course through the television what the week's viewing was going to be. Because back in those days, we only had three channels. And if you blink and you missed it. So you had to time when you could watch it and he mapped a course for us with what we would watch which was god everything and what i find interesting about back then was because you had to work quite hard for it there wasn't the ease with which things come what you saw and read then really stuck and i remember a great deal from back then with actually quite good clarity Whereas I find myself trolling through a TV now, I'm quite bored and I switch off and I don't engage. And I find that quite fascinating. So you think it, because you were more actively seeking out the information, it, it, it stuck with you, yeah? Yeah, we really made an effort. And Dad, piles of books were left around the house and he's, nothing was rammed down our throat. We were, we were very quietly encouraged in a very subtle, watchy way. Mm. And so stuff was left lying around and if we picked it up and turned a page or just looked at it or, or it was a record or something, they were like, that's good. Well, no. we'd note it, and they would notice what their kids were doing. So books played a large part of the thing and ever-expanding ever curiosity, really quite the thing, and fascinated us. They sound very good parents, I have to say. That's, that sounds, I'm sure it's had its moments, but it sounds a very wholesome... Upbringing, actually. So your your dad's block of cheese that he built, I ha- I have in mind then a sort of wedge shaped thing. Yes, exactly. Right? Like a big okay. block of a big block of cheddar on its side with a blunt end. Okay, made of what? Um, wood, glass, brick, stone. Yeah, no, we were very blessed. Mm. And the house thought was great. And mum used to say this earlier because I and I see what she means now. When you see with modern building now, the windows seem to get smaller and smaller, which is quite weird. And she said. The one thing you get in Scotland is a view. Yeah. That was, that's what lifts it up above all other things. Yeah. And so she never understood Firefox. And so Octa House had huge windows. Yeah. So we looked out. And when you're standing at the kitchen sink, uh, you look right down to the bottom of the garden and then over the fields. And you can just see a whisper of Shahalian, which is the equilateral triangle-shaped mountain. But it's basically an, un- an, un- an uninterrupted view right to the West Coast. I mean, it's incredible. Wow. Uh, and the Sidlaw Hills going there, and then you had the, had the Cairngorms going that way, and then you had the Grampians going that way. It was an incredible place to grow up. And we ran riot. I mean, how we weren't killed is just miraculous. You know, as kid- but kids are indestructible. It's incredible. So when did the idea come into your head that food might be a thing that you could pursue? Well, that is a brilliant question. How did it all begin? Well, at the very beginning, we were incredibly well-fed from day one. 
Mum and Dad thought it absolutely vital, and it was all homemade, from really good stuff bought from all over, and their favourite shops. And then on Friday was the huge shop for the week, where Dad, who made incredible lists, he was phenomenally organised in that way. I think there'd be all sorts of terms for it now. I'm not quite sure what they were, but a lot. But not organised. <laughs> <laughs> but he loved a list, draw this kind of, what was going to get from the butcher and the baker and the greengrocer. And he loved it. And I know, and back in those days, you could pull in, you could drive and pull in front of a shop, duck in, buy a half dozen eggs, get your bacon, have a chat with John Aiken. Not too thick, not too thin. House is streaky this week. <laughs> Loathed back bacon. It's so funny. And it was always streaky. And if you could get, get an Ayrshire bacon, when you, get the, when you got the whole thing wrapped in a roll, which is very beautiful. And so we grew up with food. Mum was a fabulous cook, really stunning. And what she was really great at, because Granny was a really coothy Scots cook, so it was great mince and steamed puddings and rice puddings, but really good ones. And her mash was like a cloud. I mean, I always remember that. And these little dumplings she made on top of her mince that were just, God, they were like kisses. I mean, it was incredible, just the lightest touch. You know, but the Scots did have this incredible cooking back then. Mm. And pans of lentil soup and broths of barley and what have you. I mean, just loved it. Mum particularly adored France and so cooked a lot of that as well. So she had a remarkable way about her. It was really beguiling and great. And I used to love being in the kitchen with her. I've actually poodled away. You had a cigarette in an ashtray here and a coffee cup there. And there was no fuff and fan and nonsense in the kitchen. She elegantly just went about her business. And that, I think, struck. I think that really did make a great impression for later on. When come that dreary day, when you had to decide what your career was going to be, and for some bizarre reason, I never filled out a knocker form at school. And I always thought, probably because I was going to go back to fifth, sixth year and figure it out then. We're really, I mean, that's an incredible thing. So many folk I know from that time. We had no plans. And it was our last summer holiday together because we came back from France and there was that big brown envelope. And I went, oh God, here the bloody girl. <laughs> you know, walk of shame, usual stuff, and tore it open while mum and dad were decanting four weeks worth of six people's holiday from France. <laughs> Just incredible, like military manoeuvres. And mum said, oh, what is it? And I went, mum. And she said, oh, yes, darling. What, yeah, go on, shatter me. And I said, I've got them. I pulled out this paper and I went, oh my God, I've got my hires. And she said, oh, bravo. Um, and does that mean I don't have to go back to 60? And she went, well, not if you don't want to. And that was the conversation. I think it was literally that simple. I went, oh, nice. To earn some pocket money to pay for this, because I was obviously still living at home, I, and while I was going to commercial college, to sit some, I think, six-year studies or A-levels, I can't quite remember. But really, but primarily to put a portfolio together to submit to the Duncan and Jordan Art College where my brothers had gone and dad had gone and even my grandfather had gone. And along the way, I turned some pocket money. Uh, it just so happened that our very dear friend of my mother's, Mrs. Valentine, had died. And she lived in this incredibly beautiful manor house down at the bottom of the road where, from the village where we lived. And it was bought by our entrepreneurial Edinburgh couple. And... They turned it into this very beautiful, neat little hotel. And they put three young chefs in there, headed by Nori Preedy. And there was Billy and Mark. And they came from the school of Escoffier and the British Transport Hotels. And they took uh, this gawky, gauche kid under their wings because I went in as a waiter, rubbish at it. And then I think the last time I tipped red 
cabbage and ratatouille. I mean, that's the time we lived in. Would you ever say I've read cabbage and ratatouille in the same day? Together. Wow, interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, no, really. Like seven different vegetables. Like, this is mental. <laughs> and down the front it went again, another stained jacket. And amazingly, instead of sacking me, they put me in the kitchen. Which, I mean, extraordinary how these little tor- turns of fate shape your life. And these three very lovely men, they were very sweet and thought they were very funny. And they loved dad because I really Everyone loved dad and mum. And so started an apprenticeship without any plan or thoughtful. And I ducked out of college and suddenly the years rolled by and I had an apprenticeship under my belt. And then Norrie, who was the head chef, took me outside one day and he just said, what's going on? And I went, what have I done wrong? And he went, nothing. In fact, quite the opposite. You know, um, what are your plans? You know, you're you're, you're doing really well. There's nowhere really for you to go here, you know, because there's Norrie, Billy and Mark. And back then, I think it was quite normal to stay for long periods of time in a job. And my rewards for doing so well, I suppose, and that's the word for, I suppose, is that the term for it? I suppose, surviving, maybe, was to plop me on a train down to London to have an interview with Keith Podmore at Boodles, who was their alma mater. But now cooking at this very grand gentleman's club on St. James's Street in London to go and have a job with him. And so I went down on a huge 125 train, walked past the Ritz going, oh my God, this is all a bit giddy, into the doors of Boodles, sat down, got a job. And then straight back on the tube up to King's Cross and then back up north and said, I got a job in London. And before you knew it, my parents had packed my bags for me. (laughs) Couldn't get me out fast enough. And that new year, I'm turning 21, I moved to London and went into this incredible Georgian pile, Adamesque in architecture, which the members own. And this warring, labyrinthine-like kitchen with these incredible cages, the bins of all the wines they had, because they owned it all. There was a fabulous food culture in the West End of London back Mm. then. Butchers on Mount Street and grocers. There were communities and folks shopped. And it's a great sadness to see much of that has now fallen away. Because it was ace when you could just prittle about on bookshelves. And it actually helped a kid from a very sheltered realm up in Scotland. It was all dazzlingly new. I used to get my hair cut at Trompers because I thought that's what you did. I mean, for God's sake. (laughs) You know, then pop into Haywood Hill next door on Curzon Street and go to the cinema there. Yeah, no, your first address being SWL is not really the wisest move. Just spoiled rotten and never really recovered. (laughs) But having the West End as your stomping ground was just incredible. So much fun. But got, I mean, catapulted into life in the West End, which was just brilliant. Interestingly, back then, it was very rare to meet a real Londoner. Most folk you met came from everywhere else. And so that's what I find odd about Brexit. We were all... uh, London was just awash with folk from all over the country and Britain and from abroad. It was an amazing... But you bucked up in no time at all. And suddenly your sense of life and time and place was inextricably altered and your mind expanded accordingly. Mm. Back then, it was just bustling and this incredible movement in restaurants and food illuminating and rumbling and starting. And I'm forever grateful that I just happened to step off the train one morning when this was all just starting and just got swept up in the wave of it. It was amazing. So, I mean, fast forwarding a little bit from there, you ended up as the head chef at Blueprint cafe yes. which was above the design museum and it was quite a curious place wasn't it Bec- down there because terence conrand in a way i was a, it was placemaking he've invented this i mean i felt this area that 
certainly I'd never really ventured to before, but there was this museum and there was this restaurant and you had a reason to go down there now. You were there for 18 years, is that right? Yes, as a dear friend once said, oh my God, what did you do? Lifers get less than that now, <laughs> film. So I thought, charming. Well, no, you did, yeah, well, you, did, you know, you yeah. No, earlier. it was, no, Shad Thames back then, Butler's Wharf, were incredible. And I think Terence's story... No, it was. It's what no, what Terence would say because he became a, he did become a great pal, and oh God, I miss him terribly. Terence had been on a boat, and I think back then, you know, it's hard to imagine that the South Bank was still a burnt-out shell, still mm. from the Second World War and the collapse of industry and the huge merchant navy that once fueled this thing called an empire. Mm. And Terence said, well, "This is complete insanity." I mean. There's Tower Bridge, there's the Tower of London, there's the city, the biggest financial powerhouse in the world, there's the Mint, for God's sakes, Mm. and these derelict wharfs. And it was at the height of his powers when he had British home stores and mother care that he bought on the back of his incredible success with Habitat and the Conrad shop. And he always loved restaurants, absolutely mad about food. And on the back of that success, he then bought Butler's Wharf, but he also bought, I think it was the old P&O, offices, which then became the Design Museum. One of the things he was adamant about was that he really did not want the coach tours coming in for the cup of soup, and the bag of crisps and the bad biscuit for, for tuppence heaping. <laughs> so it's terrible. Why don't we eat well in museums? Why don't we celebrate what we are looking at? He said it's absurd mentality. And he, was always, he always had to do sort of an incredible mind for these. Why can't it all be delicious? And it was like, oh, God, you're so right, so good, so ace. And to give the last final financial push to the design museum to get it open, he gave the lease of the first floor to the Blueprint Cafe, and thus the restaurant was founded. And I had this amazing stairwell up in this huge glass-bricked stairwell onto the first floor. And the trick with the Blueprint was, you had to, so once you got in to this gorgeous honeyed wooden floor with these Eames tables and bentwood chairs and these beautiful French bistro red top tables. Dead simple, dead plain. And I think it's the one dining room he actually did himself entirely. And, and the blueprint became a thing. It was remarkable. And the original chef there was a Californian chap. Been given a, he was given a flat in Butler's Wharf. <laughs> oh boy, did I miss out on that one. Yeah. Really, it's absolutely <laughs> snarling whenever I think about it. But hey-ho, life changes. And, but it was so great because the incredible traffic of people around this hub and around Terence's world was just beguiling and brilliant. Mm. And we fed them all. Well, I was going to ask you about that, because if you've got a restaurant that's attached to a design institution, how does that influence what you do with the food? Or does it influence it? Oh, God. No, I think Terence invited me to, because I think he liked my food, because I'd pre prior to taking up the helm of Blueprint, I'd cooked with Alistair Little for many years. And then prior to cooking with Alistair Little for many years, I cooked at Bendham for many years, which was the, really was the most beautiful restaurant. But back then, what's interesting to remember about London, about the, there weren't many restaurants. 
on this whole realm that we're enjoying now. And there was nothing in the, I mean, all these, oh, Broadway market was a sleeping beauty back then. It was, I mean, it was Cobweb City. Mm. None of this was happening in Deptford and Hackney and all the outlying areas. Everything was centred in the West End. Yeah. And by South Kent was no exception. And Terence had done the most magnificent restoration of the Mich- Michelin building. So it was incredibly stylish. And the food we loved was simple and good and fresh. Just good sound cooking. And we were all mad about British food and despaired of this incredible notion of what British cooking was. And so it began to come tentatively out of the shadows and take its place on the stage along with all these grandies when French cooking held absolute supreme first place. Mm. And then Tennant said, come and do the blueprint. And somehow couldn't say no. And so it was exit to the old crew, enter the new crew, and a very lovely, simple, structured menu that had a lovely logo that was designed by Flo Bailey based on a bottle of Aishazo that Stephen Bailey and Terence Conrad had drunk together, I think <laughs> back in their boiler house days. Well, I mean, incredible. Wonderful. The whole thing was littered with these incredible stories that just filtered through the ether and wove in the very fabric of the building. And the menu went hell for leather towards, I suppose it was called modern European back then. It didn't do anyone any justice at all. They all love these terms. I mean, I just like to say it was good food made with good ingredients. And that's, to me, and still does seem enough. Because I think there's a deal signed when you book a table or sit down at a table in a restaurant that you trust that the, the whole emphasis will be on having done the right thing and it will all be good mm. and that's why people are disappointed when it isn't and hopefully very rarely that happens so let, well that, that leads us nicely then on to your home of the present which we're in now so we are in east london near london fields this building i think was a garment factory wasn't it Is yeah that, well, it was a suit repository for one of the big chain tailors on Oxford Street Chapel. Uh, I've lived all over. And I know, and I was in an amazing flat in Covent Garden with my sister. And gay boys shouldn't share flats with their sisters. It's really bad. <laughs> it really is a bad idea. And I adore my sister, Pat Madley. There had come up obvious at the time, like, I think you need your own place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and my sister, she had a friend who was an estate agent, property person, who said, well, we've got this funny building. Have you thought about Hackney? And I went, absolutely not. I said, the only thing I knew about Hackney was that taxis wouldn't take you there and just laughed at you. And particularly if you try to get back, coming back from Hackney back then, it's, it's incredible to believe you know, this incredible location was just so dismissed. Anyway, I find myself walking up the canal and down here going, oh, and there's a nice little London Fields Park, lovely, yes, that's very nice. And then onto Mayor Street and then onto... King Edward's Road, and I walked into this, these ridiculous big glass doors. Went, that's a bit posh. I mean, <laughs> we're in Hackney. Why? And then through these long corridors, going, oh my God, what is this? And then opened the door onto this just <laughs> incredible light, and these huge ceilings and vast glass windows. I'm like, okay, <laughs> done. Yeah. So it was, it was this window and the view out on the light that did it. Yeah. And the, I mean, and the just double height. I mean, it was just a shell with this crappy floor, which I've kept because it's. Honey, it's nicely coloured. <laughs> and every time I think about, oh, I must put some oak down, I must put some wood down. Like, 
oh, do you know what? It's ridiculous. And also, it's bad for the planet. Well, just, you know, until the last sheen goes, you know. Um, <laughs> and you can, and also just chuck a couple of rugs down. Your rugs look great, I have to say. I really like the, the, the two butted up against each other. Like. They're really, they're, they're proper Pantone ones. I know, they were, they were a nice find. And as ever, I've looked, I'm, I wanted to get a pink and orange one. No can do. It's funny how things just vanish. It's quite peculiar. So I lucked out with that one. And it goes quite nicely with all the, the, the scubbins here. But it was definitely, and also having the original Catterston windows was great. Yeah. Which I very oddly don't have double glazing at the top. So it's a very odd flat to be in in present times. And so I'm just, I just, but I was brought up by a mother who just had open windows all year round. <laughs> and then dad would try and close them and bump up the heating. So I've got my foot in each camp on that one. Um, does, does it get cold in here though? Bloody perishing. Does it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> badass freezing. But I've got tons of blankies and I love a woolly jumper. And, and the heating, there were these awful, huge radiators on every wall when I moved in here. These massive storage things. Mm. And I loathe them. And you put the thing on, I mean, you'd boil in a minute. Okay. I mean, what do you think? This is an old folks home. It's absurd. And so a very sweet friend of mine who did paint it. But honestly, it has been painted once before. <laughs> Hold very kindly hold it. God, I think he did his back in. It was just ridiculous. <laughs> so I don't have heating. I've got uh, wow. there's a radiator hidden behind that thing there. Is what a proper radiator? A or proper a... radiator. Yeah. But I've, I haven't switched. I mean, I've just drowned it in books. I mean, yeah, an archaeological dig there one day. <laughs> and there's one in the bedroom, which works very well. Yeah. Otherwise, I just trying to light the heater because I stay here so barely. I'm very rarely here. Um, Why are you really I'm here? Mostly working. In some, I mean, if I'm not in the kitchen, I'm in the restaurant. If I'm not in the restaurant, I'm out doing something usually food related. Mm. It's, it's a sort of cocking me flat. And I, and I get huge guilt pangs every now and again, going, oh, for God's sake, so get a grip and modernise. So there, there, there's lots to be done. But I also hark back to how I grew up. I quite like its ad hoc, arbitrary yeah. way. And, and, and then it's not immaculate and it's not perfect by any stretch, and the kitchen's hilarious and it's a tiny little scullery. But it does a fairly decent job of cooking pretty good tuck for a nice big table. Um, well, I was going to ask you about the table because I think I'm right in saying that you you said somewhere that you prefer the benches to the to single yes. chairs, right? Why is that? I mean, well, I, when I first moved here, I got this that table over there. It's an amazing old piece uh, that I managed to buy from the incredible and Lebanese food writer, Anissa Halou when she had a flat in Charlotte Street down in Shoreditch. She's a great pal. And she said, you do know what that table's worth, dear, don't you? And I went, no, I don't know. Who looks at the value of tables? That's just weird. But you're, you're, she's just a phenomenal eye for art. Anyway, that used to sit over here. Back in the days, you used to cycle up Hackney Road and there would be all sorts of stuff out on the street for sale for right. Tuppence Hickney. Anyway, I was having some friends over and I went into SCP on curtain mode to honestly just to buy a coffee cups. That's all I was going to buy. And off the back of the truck, Paul was bringing in this incredibly beautiful wooden table. And I went, what is that? And then these benches appear. And I went, what are those? And he said, well, they're mid-19th century chair, Jeremy. And I went, he said, is this what I think it is? And I went, Supreme Impulse Buy. Just from <laughs> <laughs> he said, it's not even positioned on the floor yet, for God's sake. <laughs> So it, it was it, a very, it, very lucky happenstance, and, a very, and it was a great, it was a great moment, a great part. It all fits beautifully, given that story. But what's well, nice yeah. is it's it's narrow, and the benches are narrow as well. And you you know this is a, a space that's longer than it is wide, so it, it yeah works really well. 
Yes, there is that railway carriage thing. And so turning it 90 degrees doesn't work. And the great thing is the benches fit under the table. So you usually get, you can actually, you can do fully optimise that space. It's yeah. such a brilliant, it's so cleverly, brilliantly thought. And the woods, they're fantastic, considering they are so slender, are brilliantly comfy. They're mm. very comfortable. And it all works. And then if you need to go soft, there's all this stuff. Well, it's very comfortable here, the space we're sitting in. And, and I, I like the Thank way you, you. You, you've got extra large loads of cushions that you've thrown a blanket over the the chair it does have that sort of thrown together thing about it which i'm sure is more conscious than it seems but it does work <laughs> i mean because it has to be doesn't it well yes i think well it's rather like a plate of food that you want to look as as natural as possible yeah as if it's just it's just been spooned out of the bowl and straight, spooned out of the pot and into the, and onto the plate. And of course, it's never quite like that. Yeah. And, but what I've, I liked having been here a long time, a bit like being in the blueprint for 18 years, you find a rhythm which is very pleasing. And you're very fortunate to find that. And that's because that's not often the case. And certainly not for everyone, for sure, I'm sure. So it's, I'm very blessed and very fortunate and very grateful for it. Mm. And it's something mum and dad taught us, that they, they just added to things over time mm. and over the years. So it wasn't a bot, you know, it wasn't a... You, know, mm. you, didn't, see, you didn't see this in the window and then mm. go, that's it, I'm going to have that. Mm. It, well, it's happened over many years and finding things and tripping over things mm. and nice presents from folk and just a hodgepodge of all sorts of things uh, that have come together over a period of time that end up in a rather pleasing, you know, sort of, um, gonna, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. Go on. Homie. I said homie. <laughs> he said the H one. <laughs> Living with books is interesting, isn't it? Because actually here, it immediately strikes you when you come in it, that the intimacy that's created by the presence of the books, they're all slightly shoved in and there's teetering piles on top of the bookshelves and... <laughs> And that's the joy of it, though, isn't it? And yeah. Do you feel that? Do you feel the kind of presence of them? Is that why you have them in here? Yes, because I grew, we grew up with walls lined in shelves of books. Yeah. And there were piles of them all over the place. I mean, God, there were piles of newspapers. I mean, the house was booby-trapped. You'd just walk past them, you'd just be like, whoosh, another pile of newspapers. Right? Like, Mom, I mean, they're years old. Why have we still got them? But no, it's just bonkers. But, I mean, you know. okay. but it's how, it's, I think it's very, no, it's not dissimilar uh, obviously, I'd like to think it's my way of doing it, but it's very—it's not dissimilar to how we were brought up. Okay. And big couches, tons of cushions and rugs everywhere because we always—we always got under a rug on a sofa. Mm. I mean, it's just a given because Scotland is quite cold, mm. and the East Coast is brutally winded by the North Sea, mm. and the Tay Valley, which we are right on the head of, gets it full frontal. And I think uh, reflected on that, and we grew up, although it was a house that's very modern. Back then, there was an incredible array of antique shops. Mm. And particularly as, well, I think it was an interesting time in the 60s, folk didn't like antiques. They were modernists and brightest. They wanted to go to Habitat and British home stores and all that stuff. Yeah. Also, I mean, yeah, the, the, that disparaging term, brown furniture, was, was for a long time, you just didn't have that stuff. It just wasn't fashionable, no. say. And it was all about Conran and then Habitat and Ikea and so on. Yeah. But there were beautiful, lovely things. I mean, I think that's Georgian. I think that's Edwardian. Yeah. This bit, you know, I liked uh, Mum and Dad, they were very good at mixing it all up. Yeah. yeah so we had it all. That. And so hopefully that's all reflected here. Yeah, when yeah. you have a Georgian wine table beside a, an alto stool. 
Well, they, there it is. Yeah. There it is right there. That's really lovely. And I have to say, that's my kind of favorite way of experiencing someone's space is this layering of history that you have and stuff that you've collected over the years. It feels very autobiographical in here, which is what you want, I think, from a home. I mean, tell me about the sort of earthenware stuff that you've got on the shelves over there. Oh, golly gee. Well, it's, I mean, that's, that's been bought over many years. Um, I have a very dear friend who is a drug fetishist, and I won't mention her name, even though she's an esteemed actress, and I will say Lindsay Duncan. But I didn't say that. But we are drug fetishists. Yeah. I mean, I mean absolutely drug junkies. I mean, drug's bad. I mean, yeah. And that's just the brown ones. There's all the kitchens. There's glass ones out there, and they're all over the place. I uh, love them. And that's, and I inherited that from my mother. I mean, just literally cannot walk past a window, and if there's one in it, just have to have it. Rescue it. And so those ones, and there's that lovely Edmund Duval comment he makes in one of his wonderful books, which is, books and pops go very well together. And I liked that so much. Not that, again, not that there was ever a plan here, but it became something that began to appeal. You know, and I think that hilarious thing, when, you know, because when I was growing up, there was this wonderful idea that, oh, we didn't have a, we didn't, you know, Britain never had a food culture. And you're like, are you absolutely off your effing rocker? You know, and our memory is so short. We had an amazing food culture. And the Georgians were extraordinary, and the Victorians, but, I mean, ate themselves into, I mean, just ridiculous scale. Edwardians more so, but industrialization and two world wars did have the most phenomenal impact, obviously. Well, maybe we'll come back to that. I mean, the. I was interested. Yes, all that out of one pot, sorry. Well, uh, no, no, well, exactly. But uh, staying with this place for a moment, you, you said earlier that you aren't here very much. What does that mean in reality? I mean, do you, what time do you get home? And oh, well, I don't know. It's, it's ad hoc. I mean, we brilliantly have a restaurant that's closed Sundays and Mondays, which is unbelievable now. And in fact, turned our fortunes around dramatically. Okay. And so we now have a kitchen that has two days off, which is. Yeah. Incredible. So I tend to plan, I tend to gobble them up and plan those. And that might involve going away, going seeing friends okay. down in the Sussex Downs or down in Hampshire or in Wiltshire or, or wherever, really. And so it's ad hoc when I'm here. Mm. So one of the things I loved about COVID, for example, of the, one of the few things, once the dust settled and you find yourself washed up at home, Reverence and Crusoe with the kitchen, going, bloody hell, right, what is all this? Mm. And I think I speak for well, lots of my cooking friends. We just started cooking. And so one of the brilliant things that came out of it was getting to this, to become a home properly. Mm. Instead of somewhere where I just got home late at night and then just had a quick shower, went to bed and then got up early the next morning to get back to work. I mean, we do convince ourselves we need to have busy lives and it's all just a bit too busy sometimes. So there's not very often I'm here for a period of time that allows me to get cracking on with it. Or, and then if I do, then I might go horizontal on that couch and just put that enormous black television set on and go, OK. <laughs> <laughs> What's on? So, so it sounds like your home is a, a place to just, in some ways, is a place to rest your head for a bit. Bolt hole. It's a bolt hole, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Well, Mum used to tell nice time. She said, it's your irony, isn't it? And I went, do you know what? Yes, it is. Well, yeah. It's where I come and it says I literally can close the door and just leave the keys in the lock and not think. And in and, and fact, one of the things was because I tried so hard to write this book I have done. And it was interesting. It was really hard because my whole 
mindset when I came here was to just relax, you know, just kick back and read a book. Mm. Well, before we come on to the future of where where you might live, we haven't talked about Quo Vadis at all yet. Ah, oh, yes, the so, darling. I mean, it's a seriously venerable institution, isn't it? For those who haven't ever been there or don't know much about it, just give us a sort of potted history because it's an interesting place, isn't it? She is incredible, <clears throat> Corvallis, and it's remarkable that restaurant still survives because it's almost 100 years old. And it is sited on three grade one listed Georgian houses and a grade one listed Victorian that were not higgledy piggledy together by a man called Bepino Leone over many years, from 1927 through to the 50s, when it became this incredibly glamorous Soho haunt for all the film world. And, and there was naughty bohemians coming over from the other side of Regent Street, from Mayfair and St James's, <laughs> um, into the flesh pots of Soho. But it was the very, at the very heart of that great, huge, bustling Italian community, that so shaped Soho in the 50s and 40s, 50s and 60s. And then over many years, it changed many hands and then went into things' hands. The restaurants can calcify. So indeed, Corvallis did. And one day, Sam and Eddie Hart were walking through Soho on their way down from their restaurant, Fino on Charlotte Street, on route to Barafino, their restaurant on Fifth Street, and bought it. I literally think they went in and just said, okay. And so Barafina is this neat, tiny, brilliant counter with bench stools around it, no booking system. Phenomenal. Mm. Unbelievable. Corvaris, literally the diametric opposite. <laughs> the most complex, complicated, greedy, fabulous, needy, demanding, and extraordinary site with many rooms, many staircases, many floors, many facets. Um, so exact, exactly like you as a building, I think. Uh, it's basically, yeah. there you have it. Uh, rumbled. <laughs> I mean, incredible. And the boys opened to a tremendous fanfare. I mean, they managed the most fabulous amounts of money to make it the most beautiful place on earth. And it literally did look like a, you were entering the world of an Hercule Poirot. I mean, this incredible glow and honeyed woods and the best of everything. But the world changed. A recession hit. Down she went like a ton of bricks, poor love. I mean, we all stumbled past Corvallis from the colony room on the route to the Grant Show Club and down to Jerry's and other Soho flesh pots <laughs> and wonderful times back there. But Corvallis is, and I did have a members club as well upstairs because the boys did this remarkable thing is that they, depending on how you look at it, it's either a restaurant with a members club attached or it's a private members club with a public restaurant. Mm. Either way, it's unique. And it never entered my head that something like that would come to my domain. So I went down to, there was a meeting at D&D, what we were going to do for this big 21st. And then a few days later, Sam and Eddie called and said, could we speak to you? And I went, oh. And so the conversation began. And it was lovely and incredible. And I mean, it was just the most overwhelming, daunting thing. But it really mattered. And there was never going to be another opportunity like this because she is the one amongst the very last of her kind and so on. She's yep. one of the great queens. Yeah. And so this incredible tenure started, which I was in no way prepared for, ready for, in any way for. My dad was very ill and had just died. In fact, he died the morning we, we opened. Mm. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. I mean, that really, Dad, honestly, your timing could not be. I was shocking. It's a punch drunk. So we were punch drunk starting it. And then dance began. We made this amazing world for ourselves, which blessedly, brilliantly continues, mm. uh, which is incredible. Well, let's think about the future. So in my book, A Modern Way to Live, 
I basically said there's kind of five principles I think that you can apply to any living space. And if you look at it through that, that kind of lens, I think you can make it a more successful environment. I wanted to start with the first one, which is space. And I thought a space of your dreams, a space of your future, how would it be arranged? What would the kind of spatial elements of it look like, do you think? Would you live in one room? Would it be a more house-shaped thing? Yes. Well, you hit a very interesting nail on the head there. Because I don't, I don't like lots of rooms. Okay. I don't understand dining rooms at all. Right. Uh, and I don't understand sitting rooms. And I'm very much more taken with the idea of a lovely big space. And at the very heart of it, I'm just the kitchen of dreams, which I would love very much to do. And that's something that I think would be part and parcel of this next adventure in my life. So what would a kitchen of dreams be? Well, interestingly, I'm not, I've looked constantly at fitted kitchens, designed kitchens. Mm. And one of the things I think as you've, you've observed so astutely here, it's a putting together of things here mm. over a period of time. And I like the idea of there just being single units of things that I love and around things that I've found. I mean, I'd love to find a table twice this size. It would just be the workbench on which mm. you work. And if, if necessary, commissioning a few bits and bobs that needed for, for practicality's sake. I would adore really beautiful cupboards to house everything. Because mm. I loathe dusting. And there's a, there's a big part of me that goes quite Quentin Crisp if I, if I let it. <laughs> but just, just dust and I loathe dust. But I loathe dusting in a rock and a hard place, really. So I think I would something that I think would be very clean, very linear, and then just this cosy spot in the corner would be a bit like this, actually. No, I mean, not a million miles away from this, really. Yeah. I mean, what I would probably do is turn this big space into the kitchen. Yeah, because your, your, your kitchen at the moment's tucked away, isn't it? I think what you're saying is you, you yeah. prefer it front and centre a bit more. What you described is, is, is an unfitted kitchen, as it's called, yeah. isn't it? Which is a series of elements brought together that yeah. sort of work in their own right, but... Um, there's not that same formality in a way, which I really like as well. Mm, mm. And I talk about that in the book, actually. it's What's quite good about that is you can bring in a piece of furniture and incorporate it into the kitchen, but when you move, you can take it with you and it doesn't just go in the skip, which yes. is what happens with kitchens. Well, I find that sort of, I find that sort of quite shocking. I mean, it's quite funny coming from a generation where things were built to last, this yeah. last of your lifetime. <laughs> I mean, you, you, we used to have a phone at home that I think Dad had for 40 years. Might mm. even still have it. Oh, mm. uh, no, we get a new iPhone every 12 months. You just go, there's someone, and there's a trillionaire <laughs> rubbing his hands with glee somewhere. You're just going, that is about as perverse. And as, I mean, we really have fucked up somewhere along the way, and it's somewhere it's gone very skewed. Yeah. Well, moving on then to light, which is the second one. Tell me about light and your relationship with light and the way that you... Yeah, daylight. Uh, uh, one of the things I loved about... Carking back to this old chestnut cover, But one of the things I thought was incredible with that amazing spring we had that year yeah. was having the being at home for... God, nine or six months it was, I think. It was something, whatever crazy time it was. But I didn't close the windows once. And the light, and I didn't pull the blinds down once. And just yeah. had the, just the place flooded with light. Yeah. And light means everything to me. Yeah. And one of the things I love about the, the East End, there's no big buildings. Mm. But you feel, there is a sense that you just, when you're sitting down here, you're just looking up at these huge East End skies with an uninterrupted view. True. And all you see is the old rooftop or something and trees mm. everywhere. It's mm. very beguiling. It's very mm. lovely. Yeah. And I hold that very dear. And when the sun does go down, that's why you see there's lots of hectolamps and best lights everywhere. It's all very soft and, and low. 
I was going to ask you, I did spot that, and you're a man after my own heart on that front because it's all very low level, isn't it? And it's yes. And there's, they've even got bulldog clips on, haven't they? So you can just <laughs> move them around, which is fantastic. Because light changes dramatically, yeah. and so you want to you want to catch what you can when you need it. And the lights only go on really when the last gasp is, of mm. sunlight has extinguished, and then goes in. But it's got there's a very nice feel to it when because again. That, that I, I do like a bit of cosy. I'm not very good at austere. That I'm really not good at. <laughs> and much, and so it's extraordinary having this vast concrete structure of a ceiling, yeah. uh, which is bizarrely warm. It's very odd. It's not, for all its brutalist nature, it's mm. actually quite warm. Mm. And my God, try drilling into it. <laughs> well, that brings on to materials. Obviously, you've got a real combination here, but as you say, you've got the concrete of the ceiling. Mm. And then you talked about the floor. Is, is this the floor you inherited when you... Yes, this is what they put in. I think it's interesting you haven't changed it because I talk a lot about the anxiety that certain materials cause you, but Mm. I imagine you just don't worry about it. No, it's because I live alone, I'm here alone. Well, it's very easy to maintain this flat. That's the other thing. It's actually, it's quite easy to keep it. And also, I'm afraid to say if it's not broken, I don't see why you should fix it. Mm. And I don't have that muscle that, oh my God, it's a plastic floor. I don't even really notice it anymore. And mm. frankly, very few people do, bizarrely. Mm. Because hopefully they're so engaged with talk and wine and food and chat, they don't <laughs> notice the floorboards. It'd be very odd if everyone came and went, oh, look at your floorboards. You'd have to go, you're very odd. Are you really a friend of mine? So I think that would be, it's a, it's a deal breaker, that one. Well, no, because it knows it's a flurry of books and jugs and pink socks and cushions, isn't it? <laughs> well, your socks are very good, to, I have to say, it's a very excellent wardrobe. My, my, yeah, my and I must thank you Nikes. for your book as well, because I, I, I love looking through the modern house and seeing where next you're going to be and these incredible places. It's so wonderful. Well, it's exactly. I think there is that element, isn't there, of this idea that you can reimagine your life somewhat. So, um the next one is nature, right? So you're obviously an urban dweller, but do mm. you you grew up in the countryside? Would you prefer to be in the countryside if you could? No, both. Yeah. Uh, the dream scenario would be both. Yeah. And I would I would love to have this, and then I would also love a place in the country with a garden and grow things and eat things I've grown, and I would love all that. Yeah. And there you could have a dog and all that malarkey. Mm. Because as a flat dweller working in restaurants, those things have denied me. I'm very blessed that I have got a lot of very dear friends who've mm. got, who do live in the country now and have places there. Mm. So I do okay. And do I really want a second house? No, I've still got my parents' house in Scotland, which I would love to go to. But when I do go there, I go, oh, God, this is very nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I love the seaside as well, though. Where would you be by the seaside then? Very good question. I think it would probably be... Well, I'm torn because I quite like the sort of Margate idea, but I've never been to Margate, so I'd quite like to go on deal. Yeah. I quite like that kind of thing. But I also love where Mary Lou, what Mary Lou did with the seaside boarding house down at Chesil Beach. is amazing and beautiful. And I like that whole Dorset definitely but I like that very much as well it's a beautiful part you know, of the coast but it's an amazing when we were an island and we've got what 70,000 miles of a coastline mm. and you've got a small family of house plants in here <laughs> <laughs> I know I didn't kill them I can't believe yeah, it I've got green fingers you. well for that lot anyway yeah no it's they're great in fact they, they all need transplanting into bigger pots because they're growing <laughs> which is bonkers, uh, properly. Like, where did this all come well, from? They're getting a lot of light there. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then the last of the five is decoration, which is a, yeah. quite a grandiose word, but 
your sort of dream space, describe what it might look like. Would it have white walls like this? I think white, definitely. I think white walls. And there's a whole raft of stuff up there that I've got to get framed and mounted and framed and hung, which I haven't done yet at all. And what, um, what is that stuff? A lot of original John Broadleys, lots of film posters, lots of illustrations I picked up along the way I door illustration. And they're nice, cute little things. Mm. Nothing major by any stretch, not art per se. And stuff of my dad's as well. And right. Something of my grandfather's too. So, you, so it sounds like you, the stuff that you have is things that you've inherited or picked up along the way, but not necessarily consciously collected. No, I think other than John Brodney, who I do consciously collect, yeah. I think he's unbelievable. And there really hasn't been a correlation between an illustrator and a cook, really, since Ambrose Heath and Borden and Villiers and Co. And mm. I'm very aware of how treasured and special and rare this is mm. and what it actually means. OK, but you don't buy anything from auction or anything like that? Or... No, I think there is... God, there's things I regret not buying, mm. that's for sure. A lot that I could have had along the way. But no, I think... I'd, I'd, I just like stumbling on things. And then the part of me just goes, oh, God, don't I really just want my memories, really? Yeah. And also, the, the house we grew up and there wasn't a lot of stuff on the walls and most of it was dad's own mm. so it's not really something i don't need that i don't and i quite like the piece of mm. blank space mm. it's interesting that actually isn't it because it's very one word is cluttered with <laughs> with with, with oh, books yeah. and earthenware and and and, and yes. records and stuff but actually this double height space you've got these huge walls nothing on them mm. that is that's quite rare i would say it's interesting so do you live here on your own or do you have a partner I'm very much alone, yeah. yes. But I'm part of that, that madcap crew who came through the 70s, and 80s and 90s. And God, I'm very grateful to be here, frankly. Right. And no, that ship never sailed. But I'm blessed in so many other ways. I barely even really think about it, actually. Don't know if it's a nice bachelor out there. Hi. But do you worry about that? Do you worry about being lonely? No, life no. sorts itself out. Yeah. Life sorts itself out. And I think I have so much to be grateful for. Should someone come along? Yes, of course. So far, not. It's all right. Yeah. And what about work? Do you think you'll just plough on or do you think at some point you might stop? Yeah, well, that's a big thing. I'm a bloody workaholic. I'm a bit of a cliche from that point of view. That said, I am reaching an age where I'm not 21 anymore. Mm -hmm. I can't really... There's doubles and backs-to-backs and big services. And I'm in a very special place. I'm very aware and grateful for that. But things change and who knows? Yeah, exactly. The very last question for you is, looking into the future, what do you think would be your last supper? Last supper? Yeah. Oh, golly gee. Well, it has to be in August. So I'm going to take tonnes of drugs to make sure it doesn't happen in the winter. (laughs) And to make sure it happens in August, that I sit down to a mountain of langoustine and roast grouse and followed by a big bowl of late-season Scottish raspberries with freshly churned ice cream. Not that you've thought about it. Not that I've ever thought about it at all (laughs) whatsoever. Sounds lovely. Well, no, it's an amazing feast. And, yeah. I'm not, I'm very Scottish and very special. Yeah. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you so much. Thanks Thank for having you. us into your home. It's a very intimate thing, but it's appreciated. A very great pleasure. Thank you very much for being such gorgeous company. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you to Jeremy and thank you to all of you for being here. Uh, we'll put some photographs of some of the things we talked about today on the Modern House website, uh, including some lovely pics of the wedge of cheddar that Jeremy grew up in. 
Uh, it's a really great house, so do take a look at that if you get a second. Don't forget to follow the show on your chosen podcast platform if you haven't already done so. And as always, we'd be very, very grateful for a quick rating or review. This episode was edited by Oscar Crawford and produced by Hannah Phillips with music by Father. Thank you very much to all of them. Thanks again to all of you for being here and talk to you on the next one. Bye for now.